If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. I'm reading now the NIV for all you nearly inspired version people. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Let's read it again. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. They complained. They criticized. They gossiped. This man welcomes sinners, they said, and eats with them. You know, it happens slowly. It, uh, we don't even realize it when it's really taking place. We know it shouldn't be this way, but without realizing it, this church phenomena occurs in many churches. It happens to the most loving and sincere Christians. In fact, pastors and church leaders alike, we have to be on guard for this thing that we're going to talk about this morning. Unfortunately, over the years, it is called churches to split. It's called close friends to sever their relationships. It's, it's helped bring and destroy the body of Christ in many places. And when a church succumbs to this spiritual disease, because it's a disease, within a few years the church begins a rapid decline. It doesn't show up at first, but over years it, it will show up. If not corrected, the church will eventually just be a shadow of what it used to be. When someone brings this problem to the leaders of the church's attention, their first response is denial. Well, that's not happening to our church. That doesn't go on in our church. That sickness has not infected our church because look at all of our facilities and look at all of our equipment and our lights and our, music, our, our, our musical instruments and all the facilities and the atrium and Look at our nice parking lot, and look at our bus, and look at all the stuff we have. That, this sickness is not infecting our church. But behind the facilities and all the stuff, if you're not careful, a spiritual cancer will start to grow. And it will eventually cause the beautiful church to implode. Implode. Not explode. Implode. What am I talking about? I'm talking about church is about me disease. I'm talking about a spiritual disease that gets on us Christians in which church becomes about us and not about the lost. It becomes about our likes and our taste and our style and not about the lost. It's a subtle deception if I was to ask any of us, me included, is church about you? You'd say, Lord, no, church is not about me. It's about Jesus and it's about the lost. That's what we'd say, but it's such a subtle deception that many of us don't even realize we fall and pray to it. What are y'all doing the Transkis doing on that side? It's not about you. You done got me off. Now I'm leaning this way. Matt gets married, him and Hannah get married two weeks ago, and now you've done changed sides. 
It's a subtle deception. For example, when was the last time you invited a guest or brought somebody to church with you? When is the last time that happened? Well, you know, it's been a while. You know why? Because church is about you. It's not about the lost. Have you been guilty of leaving church when something was said and complaining about something that was said or a change that took place or a decision that was made because it doesn't fit your style or your taste or the way you would have done it and before you get home you're complaining about it or when you get home you complain about it instead of first praying about it? Has that ever happened to you? And if it has, let me just say, you've been infected with the church is about me disease. Have you ever been upset because somebody got your chair, your seat, or your parking spot? Or they're in your row or your section? If that be the case, you're infected with churches about me disease. When was the last time you voiced concern over not seeing a bunch of new families? When was the last time you shared with leadership, I'm concerned about our church because we're not reaching out enough. When was the last time you shared, I'm concerned because we're not giving enough to missions? Now we voice, we are easy as Christians to voice our concern about things that it's about us, but not about the world. And when that happens, we've become infected. Church is about me. When was the last time you sacrificed or gone out of our way recently to help a ministry that needed volunteers? How many times have we sat and heard the appeal that children need help, youth need help, adult ministries need help, and we sit here and have the strength and the ability, but we don't want our schedule interrupted? You know what's happened? You've become infected. We've become infected. Church is about me, disease. When was the last time we felt compelled to talk to somebody about Christ? When was the last time our heart leapt within us when we some, saw somebody in trouble and we knew if they had Jesus, Jesus was the answer. And if they had Him, their life would be different. But we just, we just looked at them with pity or we looked at them with shame and and not felt compelled to go and share Christ with them and the story of what Jesus has done for them. If you're not compelled to help people like that, then we've become infected and don't even realize it. Church is about me. Disease. Or here's one. Have we recently not showed up for a church assignment we signed up for simply because it wasn't convenient or somebody something's interrupted us? Yet we made a commitment to be there. And maybe the church had to pay money for the meal, but we didn't show up because a last-minute interruption or just didn't feel like it or something happened. If that's you, guess what? You're infected. Infected with what? Church is about me. Disease. And here's what I've learned. The church is about me. Disease doesn't happen to new Christians. It only happens to people who've been in the church a while. Do you remember when you first got saved? 
When you first got saved, you wanted to share it with everybody. You wanted to tell everybody about your newfound faith and your newfound Lord and your newfound Savior. How many remember that day? Does anybody remember that day? When you first got saved, you wanted to be involved in everything. You wanted to be at everything. You were like a sponge and you were taking it in constantly and continually. And But then time happens and we become part of the church and we get used to church and we serve Jesus for several years and, and then things become routine. And then notice what the scripture we just read said. It wasn't the the loss that were complaining. It was the people, the teachers, the people who were in the church. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered to hear, but the Pharisees, the church people, and the teachers of the law criticized. They muttered. They complained. You see, you don't get church is about me disease when you first get saved. That's something you get over time. I uh, go back to uh, Luke chapter 15. Let's look at something. Luke chapter 15, verse number 3. Notice what Luke chapter 15, verse number 3 says. Then Jesus, this is how Jesus dealt with the churches about me disease. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave? Everybody say leave. Doesn't he leave the ninety? Nine, in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. Verse 7, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Let me show you how Jesus dealt with the church who is, is without, about me disease. Number one, Jesus lets us know that there are times in the church world that the needs of the lost are a greater priority than the needs of the righteous. I know that's difficult for us church people to hear, but the need, there are times in the church world that the needs of the lost are a greater priority than the needs of the of the righteous. Amen. You say, well, pastor, I th- you know, church is, is for Christians. Well, church is for Christians, but church is also for the lost. Yes. It's for the lost. And notice what Jesus says here. Notice what he says. Jesus told them this parable. What if a man has a hundred sheep and loses one of them? Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine? Notice the needs of the lost became greater than the needs of the righteous. And there are times in the church world where lost people and their needs are more important and should take priority than over Christians who who have gotten spiritually fat and are not exercising their faith. Well, hallelujah. I see you're excited about this. Let's continue on. And then notice what he says in verse 4. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep. And loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety and nine? He leaves the righteous. And goes to the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it. The needs of the lost take greater priority at times than the needs of the righteous. Number two. The rescuing of the lost should excite us as much as the blessings received by the righteous. 
We are great at talking, rejoicing when somebody gets healed. And we thank it when people get healed. We thank God when people get healed. We rejoice when somebody gets a financial promotion or an increase and God blesses them because of answered prayer. We rejoice and we shout. When was the last time we had a running shout and conniption fit, as Granny used to say, when somebody gave their heart to Jesus Christ? When they were delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son, when was the last time we really shouted over something like that? We shout when we get a raise. We shout when we get a healing. We shout when something good happens to our children. Well, what about somebody who was headed to a sinner's hell for an eternity and God redeems them right before they slip off into eternity without Christ? What about shouting over something like that? Notice what he says, that, that we should be as excited over people getting born again. Notice what he says there in that verse. Notice what he says, verse five, 5. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you in the name, same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Oh God, may it come a day that every time we give an altar call, people respond and accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. May it happen. May it happen. Number three. Our personal involvement in rescuing the lost or lack of personal involvement in rescuing the lost reveals the value we place upon the eternal welfare of a human being. Well, I, I, I love the lost. Well, when's the last time you witnessed to the lost? Our involvement in rescuing the lost or lack of involvement rescuing the lost reveals the value the value we place upon the eternal welfare of a human being. Look at verse 8 of Luke 15. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. She had nine coins that was still in her possession. She lost one. But that one was so valuable to her that she went after it and searched diligently and carefully. One translation says diligently until she finds it. My involvement in helping reach people for Christ or witnessing to people for Christ or my lack of involvement in doing it reveals the value I place upon their eternal welfare. And if we don't do it, not to put anybody under condemnation or even to put myself under condemnation, but if we don't do it, guess what has happened? We've become infected with churches about me disease. And we don't even realize it. Number four. This is how Jesus taught us. Rescuing the lost requires effort and the permission for our comfort to be interrupted. Notice the woman searched diligently. She interrupted her schedule to seek out this lost coin. It was important. It was valuable. 
It was more valuable to her at the time than the nine coins that she had in her possession. That one lost coin was more valuable than the nine. It was so valuable, she stopped what she had going that day till she found that coin. Rescuing the lost requires effort and the permission of our comfort to be interrupted. Go back with me one chapter. Would you go back to Luke chapter 14? Luke chapter 14. Verse number 16, Luke chapter 14, verse number 16. I'm going to read out the New Living Translation. It says this, A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servant to tell the guests, Come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. One said, I've just bought, I've just bought a field and must inspect it. That's the excuse of stuff. I got some stuff I got to take care of. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five pair of oxen and I want to try them out. That's the excuse of career. My career, my job, is interrupting my serving the Lord. Please excuse me. Number 20, another said, I just got married so I can't come. Now, <laughs> that's probably a legitimate excuse. But, but that's the excuse of relationships. My relationships. I can't, I don't, I, I can't count. The number of people, singles, single women, single guys that were serving the Lord with all their heart. And all of a sudden, they meet somebody and that one person, that relationship, interrupts their service with the Lord. They didn't meet somebody to help enhance their relationship with the Lord. That relationship, all of a sudden now, they're out of church. Neither one of them are going to church. And that's exactly what this is talking about. Verse 21, the servant returned and told his master what they said. His master was furious and said, Go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant had done this. He reported, There's still room for more. So the master said, Go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full. Here's the fifth thing Jesus told us about fighting this disease. The method of rescuing the lost is different than the method of motivating the saints. Hear me, please. The The reason most of us don't reach lost people is because we haven't grabbed hold of this truth. The method of reaching the lost is different than the method of motivating the saints. Notice, to the people that were invited, the saints, he sent an invitation. How many times have we done this? Put it up on the screen. Put it in the bulletin. Send a Facebook or a mass text. Put it on social media. We're having this event. We're having that event. We're having this service. We're having this outing. We're having this. We're doing this. We're having this meal. We're having this. We announce it. Just like the Bible says, when it comes to saints, you send invitation. But when it comes to the lost, you go get them. And most of us don't want to do that. Well, I invite somebody to church. Yeah, but notice what he said. He said, you go out and compel them. You go get them. You urge them. You just don't send out an invitation. You go get them. Because you've got to remember, the God of this world has their mind and their heart, and He's pulling everything against them to keep them from coming. It is good. Thank you very much. It is good. Thank you very much. Now look at verse number 11. 
Luke chapter 15. Look at Luke chapter 15, verse 11. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. Two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So the father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. So the boy's not asking for something that doesn't belong to him. He's asking for what belongs to him. The boy didn't steal anything from the father. The father agreed to give it to him. He said, yes, yeah, yours. I'm going to give it to you now. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all of his money in wild living. One translation says sinful living. In other words, he took the blessings of the father and he blew it on sinful living. About the time his money ran out, verse 14, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. That's interesting. Look what he said in verse 14. About the time his money ran out, about the time his money ran out, about the time his money ran out, a famine swept over the land. About the time his money ran out, a famine swept over the land. About the time that his money ran out, a famine happened to sweep over the land. How many have heard this? God has a plan for your life. How many have heard that saying before? God has a plan for your life. Lift your hand if you've heard that. God's got a plan. All right. Well, let me tell you another one. The devil has a plan for your life too. And have you ever noticed some people, if they ever take that step toward the devil's direction, before long, all hell breaks loose in their life. They just take a step in Satan's direction and then the bottom falls out. Things just get worse and worse and worse. About the time he spent all that he had, a famine swept the land. See, not only God has a plan for your life, but Satan has a plan for your life. That's the reason we don't play with sin. Most, most of us enjoy the pleasure of the temptation of sin. We just don't want to fall in. But we don't even need to go there because Satan's got a plan for our life. All right? Verse 14, about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land. He began to starve. Verse 15. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. 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 What's that a picture of? It's a picture of this. When the enabling ceased, reality became clear. When the enabling ceased, no one gave him anything. Suddenly, reality became clear. When you stop bailing them out, reality becomes clear. You say, what are you talking about? I say, I'm talking about my son. I'm talking about my son. When I finally got the call, Dad, I'm in jail. I'm in jail for drinking. I'm in jail. Call the sheriff and get me out. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it was the hardest words I've ever spoken in my life. When your firstborn is sitting in a county jail, the pastor of the largest church in the county, 
and your son that everybody knows is sitting in the county jail and the sheriff goes to your church and you did officiated him and his wife's wedding. And all I have to do is call and say, he messed up, we'll deal with it tomorrow. Would you let him out? And he would do it. And I had done it for other people's children. But when the enabling stopped, reality sets in. You're not coming back home acting that way. I'm not going to give you the car no more. I'm not giving you any more money. I'm not getting you out of jail, son. See, when, when enabling stops, reality sets in. And no one gave to him. That's what the Bible says. And no one gave to him. Verse 17. Then he finally came to his senses. When? When enabling stopped and reality set in. Then he finally came to his senses. He said to himself, at home even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and am no more longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. What's that a picture of? That's a picture of repentance. The enabling stopped, reality set in. He had Jesus, the Word, in his heart. He knew he was raised better. And suddenly when reality set in, he saw himself clearly. I wasn't raised this way. I've got better back at Father's house. I'm going back to Father's house and I'm going to repent and do right. That's what is called repentance. But it didn't happen until enabling stopped and reality set in. And then he says, I'm going back to Father's house. He repented. Then notice what happened. Notice what it says in verse number uh, 18. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. And verse 19. And am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. This happens to every one of us regardless of the severity of our sin. Anytime we repent. Anytime we fail, anytime we do wrong, the Holy Spirit will be on one shoulder and He'll whisper into our ear and say, you know you did wrong. Jesus loves you. Come on back home. He'll forgive you. Come on back home. Repent of what you've done. Ask God to forgive you. He'll forgive you and just come on back home. That's the Holy Spirit whispering in one ear. But in the other shoulder, the devil will jump up there and he'll say, you're not worth anything. You're terrible. I can't believe you did that. You don't need to go back because people are ashamed of you. They can't stand you. They'll make fun of you. You are worthless. See, anytime there's repentance on the hills of repentance, every one of us have to deal with condemnation. Repentance, then condemnation. Now we pick it up in verse 20. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned uh, against both heaven and you, repentance, and am no longer worthy of being called your son, condemnation. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house. Put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf. We've been fattening. Glory to God, ribeye, New York strip. 
T-bone steak, porterhouse. Hallelujah. I love it when people get saved. I love it. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and is now returned to life. He was lost, and now he is found. So though, what began? Party! Party. The party began. Hallelujah. Here's the evidence that you're not infected with churches about me. Three simple things that let you know you're not infected with churches about me disease. Number one. If you're not infected, you're always looking for the lost. Notice what it says. Verse 20. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. His father saw him coming. When he was a long way off, his father saw him coming. His father saw him coming. While he was a long way off, his father saw him coming. Let me tell you something. I'm going to tell you from personal experience that Amanda and I have dealt with. With our son. Personal experience. Until you can see him coming home by faith. In your darkest hour. They'll never come home in reality. I want to tell you something. If you've got Jesus on the inside of you and you've been faithful to put the Word of God in your children, you've got a supernatural power. I don't care where Satan has led them, tripped them, manipulated them, deceived them. There is a power, there is a tie, there is an invisible rope and chain that connects you with that child. I don't care what state they live in, what country they live in, what they've said or what they've done or how old they get. You've got a supernatural chain that connects you with them and when you pray the prayer of faith, I don't care how dark it has gotten in their life and in your family and in your relationship... There's a tug that takes place on them. There's a tug. And that father kept watching for that son to come home. Why? Because I taught him right. The incorruptible seeds inside of him. It's incorruptible. It cannot be destroyed. It can be buried. It can be rejected. It can be neglected. It can be hid. But it cannot be destroyed. It's always there. And one of these days, that seed's going to bring forth fruit. And they're coming home. And when he was a long way off, he saw him. And don't you get around these people who talk about their children and you jump in on that. Yeah, they've done terrible. Yeah, they're going to get in trouble. Yeah, they're in a mess. Listen, you get talking about uh, with people about their children and their children are, are disobedient and their children are prodigal. Don't you jump in on that type of side of the conversation. Here's what the side you get in. Well, I want you to know they might be messing up, but they're coming home. They got the seed of God in them. You just keep praying. You keep believing God. You steep picture them coming home. See, the Father had pictured it every day. One of these days, he's coming home. And every day, he looked. Every day, he looked. And this day, he saw him. See, you can tell when it's not about you because you are always looking for the lost. They're always on your mind. And you're not looking for bad news. You're looking for them to come home. And then what's the second way to know if, if you are not infected with the church's about me disease? You run toward the lost, not away from the lost. Notice what it says in verse number 
uh, 20. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son. He ran to his son. This son who had wasted all of his money. This son who had brought shame and embarrassment upon the family. This son who had walked away from everything that he had been taught and he knew was right and true. This son that had caused his mama heartache and pain. This son who had betrayed his own brother and his own flesh and blood. But when he started coming home, the love of God ran to the boy. He didn't run away from him. He ran to him. And then the third thing. If you're not infected with the church's about me disease, this is what you'll exhibit. There'll be no trial period required before love is extended. There is no trial period required before love is extended. Notice what he says. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. His son said to his father, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servant, Hold up. Let's make sure it's going to be true this time. Let's make sure he's really repented. Let's give him three weeks. Let's put him through the test. Let's make sure he's really serious about it and he's not trying to con us. Quick. The father said, no, bring the finest robe. Put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. So often we get so weary and so frustrated and so tired and so we've been promised so many times that they're going to change. And when they come home, we make them go through a grueling trial period. And yes, there should be a trial period before finances and resources are released again, but never a trial period to demonstrate love. Never a trial period before the embrace takes place. Never a trial period before the hug. Never a trial period before words of affirmation. Never a trial period before words of, of, uh, of thanksgiving and words of adoration toward that person. Never a trial period on that. Yes, there needs to be a trial. We don't, the boy had already taken his money. There ain't no more money for him. He's already taken his money. Dad didn't say, okay, I'm going to give you half that back. No, you've squandered that. You've, you've done it. There ain't no more money for you, but I'm going to love you. I take you in. We'll start all over again and see where it goes. See, there's no trial period before love is extended when it's not about you, but when it's about others. Verse 31, his father said to him, look, dear son. No, let's, let's go back to verse 25. Go back to verse 25. The whole scene changed. Acts 2, meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house and asked one of his servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fatted calf. We we're celebrating because of his safe return. The other brother was angry. And wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fatted calf. 
I showed you evidence of not being given in to that disease. Let me show you evidence that you have been infected but with the churches about me disease. You're angry or you're jealous when others who are not worthy get blessed. I can't believe you're blessing him after what he did. I can't believe you're blessing him after what he did. You get angry or jealous when others who are not worthy get blessed. Number two, you refuse to participate when it's not about you. And the Bible says here, the older brother, verse 28, was angry and wouldn't go in. I'm not participating in revival. I'm not participating in church. I'm not participating in that organization. I'm not participating in that department. They didn't do it the way I wanted to do it. I'm not leading it. I'm not in charge. They didn't make the decision I want, so I quit. You're infected. Church is about you. And the older brother was angry and would not go in. And notice the father... The saddest, one of the saddest phrases is the heavenly father has to go out to a supposedly mature Christian and begged him to come in and get involved. And the father begged him to come in. And then number three, let you know if you've been infected. You identify others by their failures more than their faith. Notice what he says. Verse 28, the other old, older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him. But he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, notice he didn't say, when my brother came back who we've been praying for. He says, when this son of yours comes back, who squandered his money on prostitutes. See, when you're infected, you talk about others' failures more than you talk about their faith. <laughs> Wake up, Wayne. That's a good word. I'm done. Stand up with me, would you? Three things. Fourth. Remember, there was four things that the father gave the young boy when he came back. There was four things the father gave him. Do you remember what those four things were? We just read it. He gave him what? A robe, a ring, sandals, and food. The fatty calf. He gave him a robe, a ring, sandals, and a fatty calf. And when the, the brother was in the field and he heard music and dancing, that's a whole other story on revival. But when he heard music and dancing, he asked the servant, you can read it again, he asked the servant, what's going on? And the servant said, your brother has come home and the father has killed the fatty calf. Notice the servant didn't say, your brother has come home and the father gave him a ring. He didn't say your servants come home and the father gave him a robe or gave him shoes. He says your brother has come home and the father gave him the fatted calf. And then the, 
father went out and said, Son, what's wrong with you? Why are you acting this way? And the son says, Dad, I can't believe your son who's wasted all your money on prostitutes, you'd kill give him the fatted calf. The son never mentioned the ring. He never mentioned the robe and he never mentioned the shoes. He's talking about this crazy cow. What is it about this cow that's got the family so upset? Now here's what you know. See, you've got to read between the lines on the Bible. You know it was a boy. It wasn't a girl that's upset. He didn't. It wasn't a daughter. It was a son. Two sons, not two girls. If it had been two girls, they'd have been upset about the ring. Or the shoes. The shoes. You know it's a boy because they're always hungry. It's the food. It's the food. What is it? Why the calf? They're not upset about the ring. And the ring's a lot more valuable than the calf. Not upset about the robe. Not upset about the shoes. They're upset about the calf. What is it about the calf? Well, the truth is, boy left he took everything he cleaned out his closet it wasn't the boy's ring it was the father's ring that he gave to the boy the boy took all of his clothes he didn't have any clothes left the bible says he took everything and wasted it he came back naked the father said go to my closet get a pair of shoes put it on him go get my robe and put it on him so the the elder brother didn't mind that because that was the father's but when it came to the fatted calf Who'd been nurturing that calf? Who'd been feeding that calf? Who'd been taking care of that calf? The dad's in retirement. It was the elder brother's calf. Remember, the dad divided everything between the two. The only thing that was left was what the elder brother had. The elder brother's calf. And all of a sudden, the father said, Go out into your brother's herd. Get the best one he's got out there. And let's give it to our boy who's come home. You know, you're infected infected with churches about me disease when somebody else has a music ministry and you won't let them have the stage because you don't want to give it up. Or children, or youth, or pastor, or whatever. See, the, the brother wasn't upset until it touched what he had and what he wanted. 